Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome, tēnā koutou katoa, no mai haramai, welcome, ko Picky Diamond aho, my name is Picky Diamond. I am a tangata whenua Māori woman from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I am joined here with fellow fire pit goers who convene once a month around the UNESCO RILA team and recently finished my PhD. But we're actually here not about me, we're here to talk about Sarah Thomas's book, The Raven's Nest. And I am joined here with Neria Bello and Udam Avva, as well as Sarah. And I would like to just pass you over to Neria, who will tell you a little bit about herself. Kia ora, Neria. Kaisho, kaisho, Neria Bello, Sakarsasunais. My name is Neria Bello. I am a researcher, activist, and artist. I work predominantly with voice and very much on the landscape. And my research interest is on creating spaces where knowledges can coexist in equal conditions. And I will pass it on to Erdem. Thanks, Neria. I'm Erdem, Erdem Afshar. I am a PhD researcher at the University of Glasgow. Based in sociology, I'm looking at the queer politics of contemporary theatre making in Turkey, where I'm originally from. Yeah, I'm also a playwright and a poet and translator. And it's such a delight to be here today with you all uh, to talk about Sarah's book. Sarah, over to you. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for showing up on all the different time zones. I'm Sarah Thomas, the author of the book we'll be talking about today, The Raven's Nest. And I wrote this book as part of a PhD in interdisciplinary studies, which is how I ended up meeting these guys through the fire pit crew uh, that was convened by Alison Phipps. And I'm a writer with an anthropology and filmmaking background. And my particular interest is in structures that take their cue from the non-human world in literature, an ecocentric mode of being in the world as well. So that's something I'm sure we'll get onto today. Thank you so much for saying that, Sarah. I just like to start with a question, if you don't mind. And it's exactly about how that works, I think, in your book too. While I was just going over the book again for this podcast, I just thought it would be useful for the listeners as well. I just kept writing down, this is a quite non-binary, messy, glorious idea. This is absolutely boundary transcending, this is absolutely disruptive, all kinds of, you know, those notes along those lines. So I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how genre traversing the book is, because you're a filmmaker, you also have a PhD, and it's, it's a little bit like life writing, but also a bit like memoir, but it's also really not. Would you like to talk a little bit about that for those who haven't read the book yet? Sure, and I should probably say what the book is you know, about. Um, it, it is a, an, I'm calling it an ecological memoir, and it's set in Iceland's West Fjords, where I spent several years of my life at the tail end of the 2008 financial crisis. So the book's time frame is 2008 to 2014, which now feels like a very different world indeed. And uh, it 
was a very life-changing experience living and dwelling in a place that had some sort of pre-capitalist elements to existence, not to sort of romanticize it, but there definitely was a sense in which this was another mode of being in the world that I hadn't experienced before that was very like reciprocal and continuous with what we like to call the natural world, which is also ourselves. So in terms of genre, I actually lived the book before I wrote it. So it existed in my body and it took many years to to shape itself. And I was really clear that I didn't want to treat it like a product that I was trying to create. And I wanted it to reveal itself to me. And that's actually why I did it as a PhD, so that I could be supported to explore over several years some of the thinking around around the concerns I had encountered in the living of it. And I suppose because I don't come from a literature background, I could be sort of uh, gloriously, I don't want to say irreverent, but I, I didn't feel beholden to any kind of imitation or or following in the tradition of anyone in particular. And because I came from a filmmaking background, this book, in a way, the reason for the book existing is because I failed to make a film. It's a response to my failure to make a film. And the reason for that failure, I think, is because that was the first uh, sort of ethnographic documentary that I tried to make in a culture and a community that I was also trying to belong to. And I came up against a lot of problems there in terms of trying to create a separation between myself behind the camera and them in front of the camera. And of course, the community was always trying to talk to me across the camera. And I was trying to be an invisible observational documentary filmmaker. And it felt very awkward. I wound up over time with a load of messy footage and a confused positionality. And in the end, I ultimately put down the camera. But as I said in my PhD, there's a lovely little wordplay that gave me the clue for the nest as the sort of archetypal metaphorical structure. And that is that clips of film and video are called rushes. And what do you use to build a nest? Rushes. I have this sentence in the PhD thesis that says, and so I was left with an armful of rushes, not knowing what to do with them. And so I built a nest. And the nest structure allows for all these messy threads of existence to be woven together in ways that are robust, but also fragile. And I wanted to create a sense of of something that could contain life. So in the sense that it's a life story, it's something that can also contain life going forward in a world that's wounded and broken. I don't know if that really speaks to your question about genre, but it sort of shows, yeah, how my thought strands led into that. And I was just looking for a kind of literature that could speak to our times, because it's all too often that the human story is predominant and nature is just in the background whereas nature is everything that we live with and it is also us so how do you make them entangle with one another that was really awesome Sarah and it was a nice little introduction to that coexisting and that weaving of people and and the environment and we've been doing in the fire pit the work around the pepeha and as I was, and because I used the audiobook, which was a really lovely experience, and then switched to the Kindle 
to hear and have you driving in the car with me and in my office with me and accompanying me. And it was just, I think it was at the fire pits where you talked about how you do these readings, but how different that is to hear a book to how to read a book. And from a culture that's very oratory based, um, you know, I just found it so homely and comforting. Mm-hmm. And it did, it took me to the work that we're doing with Pepeha. I remember asking you about this. To me, it was about Biagni's Pepeha. It's his indigeneity, where Pepeha is about searching for your identity and indigeneity and connection to land. I guess for me, it also brought up, and I know we emailed back and forth a little bit, but, and you mentioned it, was around that sense of belonging. So I just wanted to ask you to maybe talk about that kind of tension of finding, because you you lived in Kenya before, you know, and so this moving, this migrating around, it just seemed like you were always searching or trying to find that belongingness. Can you talk more to that sort of relationship of belongingness and identity that you have? And I should mention maybe for the listeners, so Bjartni is one of the, the key characters, if you like, and he's an Icelandic man who ultimately became my husband and we also divorced. So it goes through a cycle of, of uh, mm. rupture and, and repair and all sorts of, yeah, all sorts of cycles within it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's true that many people in our times are looking for that sense of belongingness in, in a world where life forces you to move around a lot and I suppose moving to Kenya I wasn't born in Kenya but I moved to Kenya when I just turned 11 so quite a kind of formative years my teenage years were spent Mm. in Kenya and that I think that gave me a a way of being in the world but also at the time I didn't sort of fully understand the legacies of of colonialism and neocolonialism I I felt a discomfort as I grew older in Mm. in the context but equally it was a place where I was, you know, going on camping trips in the Rift Valley and surrounded by buffaloes. And I was with the natural world in a way that could be perceived as quite dangerous, but we were given the agency to kind of hold ourselves in that space and taught how to do it, which was thrilling. And and it was very formative time. So I think it gave me a sort of blueprint for feeling that that was how I wanted to be in the world. And then I had this kind of interim period in my sort of 20s where I was like you know doing university and then getting a job and getting down a track where I felt like okay this anthropology thing is going well but like I need to be more in the world I felt like I was kind of moving around on top of it rather than being really in it And I actually went to Iceland for the first time because I was invited there for a film festival and visual anthropology conference. And it happened to be in this tiny fishing village where I wound up living. Well, when I say tiny fishing village, it's actually like the capital of the West Fjords, but it's a population of like two and a half thousand people. So by by UK (laughs) standards, it's tiny, but there it's like the metropolis. And it was so striking just how you get there and the mountains are just right there and the sea is right there and there's and, and all the houses have to kind of exist on this tiny spit because that's the only flat piece of land. Mm. And so you are simultaneously 
in a town and in the wild. And I found that really thrilling. And also the thing that I found most, uh, yeah, cracked me open was that it was late May and that's when the sun is getting on its way to never setting. So I would come out of the conference and the, the sky would be still, you know, full daylight. And then I'd go home to my hosts and we'd chat for hours and then it'd get to two in the morning and I think I should go to bed. But then I'd see the sun setting and rising within a moment and decide to go <laughs> out for a hike in the middle of the night because it was just yeah. so beautiful. And so it sort of turned the sense, the idea of time upside down. And so it kind of did something to me very fundamentally about belonging, which is to say that, you know, it made me ask these questions of what are all these rhythms onto which that I've been told I have to hitch myself. It kind of allowed me to start from scratch in a way of going, well, what is it to belong to the world? What is it to be entirely fluid and fluent with it? And what happens when I make my own thoughts and ideas and behaviors um, and I'd just never been in a context where I could do that because obviously my life in Kenya, as much as it was very free in some regards in terms of the school camping trips and, and us having that agency I talked about, it was very restricted in others in terms of like security. You know, once we were back in Nairobi, I lived in a very sort of gated life. And I found in Iceland that I could have that wild sort of right mm -hmm. in my <laughs> in my day and right up next to my body and in my body yeah because what I loved about the book was because I know I emailed you when I was at the beginning of the book because I was too excited and I <laughs> just had to tell you my responses to it but I think you know as I went on as an indigenous person knowing that sense of belonging and actually probably it was listening to you and reading the book that it made me question what's the difference between belonging and indigeneity because we kind of claim there's that difference in terms of someone who is not of the land of a certain land but I was listening and reading and then as you went through the chapters and your journey and followed you on your journey I there were moments was like I could see that change that transition to becoming with mm -hmm. instead of being like you said, on top, we were talking about it just prior to the podcast around something you said about your mouth changing. We were talking how your the language and how you move your mouth changes and, you know, you were very aware of that. So it was those little bits in the book that I really enjoyed where I was like, she's going, she's going, you know, so I could get that feeling of, yeah, she's about to she's hitting that point where she's being one with the people, you know, and I think it was that time where you worked in the flower shop and started to really become a part of the community and immerse yourself in the community. To me, that was, yep, she's going to really hit it now. I love that, that my mouth changed. I, I love that you were talking about that. And I really, <laughs> I'm really happy that you noticed and um, because I think it's subtle to some but I think it's very obvious to me that the persona of the narrator does shift from being one who still has their anthropological hat on towards the beginning and who winds up just unraveling that and, and allowing herself to be you know not knowing and not even trying to find out in that way and just being with and yeah the language learning as it came together 
was as revealing to me as kind of immersing myself increasingly in the landscape. But I mean, what do you think about that? Like, what, what is the difference between uh, belonging and indigeneity? That's my probably question out to the universe, <laughs> sort of, and just waiting to see what does that actually mean. And I mean, I guess I have a sense around, it's around the language. It's around the knowing of the land. I mentioned Pepeha and the work that we do with Pepeha, but some of the work I used to do in the university was to do the almost, we say papa, but it's because Pepeha is around the identity when you're in a safe space and you're talking about your personal self. Prior to that, when you're in the welcoming ritual of porphyry, you have a, a group or a collective identity that's a toparapara. And Toparapara talks about the collective identity, but the word Toparapara is actually talking about your connection to the land through blood and through spilt blood. So mm. there's that act of you know protecting the land and that um, respecting of the land is so intertwined into what you're willing to sacrifice for the land. Mm-hmm. So would you say it is possible to cultivate an indigeneity with the place that you're in if, if it's about the way you approach it? I think it's a very dangerous thing to kind of lock down. Yeah. <laughs> because what I say might be different to what some, yeah, and it's everyone's got their own opinion. I'm For me, I'm just not sure because that sense of belongingness to a place, it's almost like, that coming home feeling but I just don't know how it's defined differently to coming home when you're not indigenous to that place yeah it's just really yeah it's my conundrum at the moment it's really really interesting the relationship to language in the Basque country for example to to be Basque means to be Euskaldun which means carrier of the Basque language so Anybody can be a Basque if they carry the language. So yeah, that immediately makes you a part of something, not necessarily of a land. We are more connected by language than we are by blood or by land. And I, I really like that in this book, the language seems to be such a central part of it. And when you are trained to learn, uh, it's not Swahili, but it's like, I guess, what is the name of that other language that you were trying to learn? You were trying to feel the language in your mouth. I love that expression, um, which is what more or less what Piki was talking about. And there's two things. One, identity, it, which you have touched on. And it felt when you were in Kenya, it wasn't your choice to be there. So there was the kind of wanting to belong was a little bit ruled out kind of thing because it wasn't your choice to be there so you felt that your movements or your the way of perceiving the culture was very different to when you actually moved to Iceland Uh, and the relationship you have to the language and the learning of the language is just beautiful and thank you for taking us in your camper van and for walks in the middle of the night and for letting us hear the sound of your boots on the snow and, you know, for making such a sensory book because it's just, you can taste it, you can feel it. It's just, thank you for letting us in into you because it's quite intimate ultimately, you know, because you're talking about what you're feeling. But I want to ask you about your relationship with the language because the way you seem to very candidly and in a very childlike manner perceive it it's you always break up the words and tell us where the words come from. 
And I wonder if that is how you have perceived it or if Bjarni was very aware that that was a good way to teach you the language because he seemed like a very sensitive person to how you were perceiving his culture or his language. Well, I think that most, a lot of Icelandic words are made up of these compound parts. It's not like something that I was doing, if you like, like that is how they're put together. And I suppose it struck me most because I kept noticing parts, you know, like I kept noticing compounds coming up again and again in different contexts. And I said, oh, hang on a minute. I know that. I know that part. So what does that part actually mean? And then the other bits constellating around it. And so that really informed how I started to make sense of the whole thing. It felt like I had all these individual stars that I started to notice, and then I began to learn the constellations. That's that's really how it felt. And so it was more my noticing the compounds and then starting to ask Bjarni, oh, like, okay, so what does what does that mean? Because at first I'd say, what does this word mean? And he'd tell me the meaning of the word. But when I noticed, as I said, these compounds coming up, I started to ask more about the etymology of the word. And then that gave me the tools then to be able to figure out Okay, so maybe I can guess at what this word means a bit, because I know this part and this part. I don't know the third part, but there's something happening. I mean, in in some ways, you're right. It's childlike. It's like having these building blocks that you're constantly rearranging. And then the best part for me was when I began to understand the logic behind how the language works and could start to invent my own words for things. A lot of times it's they're kind of like kennings as well, which is two word metaphorical poems that that made the world that I was in, you know, the, the environment very animate. You know, you sort of have things like, um, well, like the word, my favorite word, echo, is bergmal, which means the language of the mountain. I mean, that is a poem and you can hear it, and there's air in it, and there's rock in it, and there's also an unknown in between. And it shows that the, the mountain is, is a protagonist in our story, very much so. And I just think that that word alone shows a lot of what the, the psyche is like. Something else I noticed as being a hugely important part of the language was silence and breath. So for me, I, I tried to build in that space into the into the prose as well, somehow, you know, and, and to show that silence isn't actually silence. It's just allowing for the other voices to be heard. So all of those times where we hear the eider ducks or the raven or the, the sea or the wind, it's simultaneously creates some space, I hope, but also a different language moving through. And that's also such an important part of the language. I notice the, the cadence with which Icelandic is spoken. Silence isn't just, you know, being at a loss for words. It's like it's <laughs> part of the sentence. I was deeply, you know, being the, the newcomer with lots of questions. I realized after about a year, I just thought, oh, my goodness, would you just shut up with your questions? <laughs> just let the silence just be because you will... You will learn a lot more by being quiet and just observing and listening. And also people will, will reveal themselves more to you. It's about pace a little bit, isn't it? You, you yeah. know, they have a different pace and you are filling in all the silences 
because you come from a different pace, slightly different pace. It's, it's yeah. um, nice to hear. And I think actually, um, because I because of the way I had to learn the language, I didn't go to any classes because there weren't any because there weren't enough foreigners in the in the place at the time to run a course. So I had to learn through immersion. And what I noticed was that what was much more important than getting the grammar exactly right, which is very difficult, it's very complicated grammar, was just learning that cadence. And so because I've learned to speak with that cadence, I can get away with quite a lot of mistakes, I've noticed. And people will still say, oh, you speak Icelandic really well. And I totally don't because I'm getting the grammar wrong all the time. But we can we can sing together is what it feels like. It's like knowing the tune, but not all the words. And so you can still you can still jam. That's what it feels like. Just picking up from what Nerea said, when you mentioned the pace in communication, Nerea, I just that reminded me of what I really, really loved and enjoyed it in the first place in the book. And that was, I think, the sense of time and temporality, Sarah, in the book. So I'm not necessarily talking about the order of the chapters, but it's more about maybe that dynamic or the tension sometimes even between remembering or making and unmaking. As you say, you, you open the book with a dedication, you say, to the ravens unmaking and remaking the world. So I was just wondering if it felt that way as well when you were writing the book and revisiting your memories too, like almost sort of manipulating that time in hindsight and just taking time as something that is almost malleable. Uh, how did that feel? Did you feel like you were remaking your memories and your time in Iceland or were completely unmaking it? Hmm, what an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, obviously, I think memories operate in that way that they, they're not, they, they may be lived out in the present moment, but the past and the future is, is always in it and it's very fluid, isn't it? So when you're thinking about memories, you're, yes. I think time is very thick, you know, it's sort of happening in this, in this, well, not just vertical plane, I think it's happening in all directions. I think we don't even begin to understand time. But I did notice that if I zoom back, so that we're back in, say, 2008, in the present moment, even in that present moment, it's thick with the past. Like, Iceland always feels thick with the past but also pointing to the future. It feels like a place that's simultaneously newborn and very ancient. And that's something to do with the, the dynamism of it being a volcanic landscape. You know, it's constantly being formed under your feet and, and it's cracking and coming apart. And that is the constant that you that you live upon. But also because of the this sort of lack of man-made built-up layers, I definitely sensed a crackle in in the land. You know, you can, your feet are directly on the ground that maybe the same ground that people have been walking on for a thousand years or so, 1200. And also not many people have walked on it. So it's sort of still quite, yeah, crackly is the word. Like it has this force about it that was very powerful. So that force was in all of my lived moments back then in the past. So when I came to writing about it, I did make, well, did I make a conscious decision? I don't know. I literally was like, you know, okay, tell me how you want to be written, book, you know. And so what <laughs> came out was the the present tense, a continuous present tense most of the time. Sometimes not. Sometimes it suddenly goes, no, no, you're going to write in the second person, past tense. I was like, okay, fine. Um, and so when that happens, that creates in terms of like 
camera work, shall we say, in inverted commas, when you have a continuous present tense most of the way and then suddenly there's a chapter that's not, it's like, ah, we're changing the camera angle here. This has got a different atmosphere and that signals, you know, this is this is something else. So there's two chapters like that where there's a bit of a turning point that happens in my own development of my psyche. And one is the um, the floating house chapter. And the other is the, the chapter called turning, which they're both very short chapters, but it's about turning is about how we look at the indigenous. And it's about that moment of me crossing the threshold between outsider and insider. And it doesn't take long at all, but it's all about, you know, me guiding a bunch of tourists on a coach and seeing my husband standing outside our house and suddenly realizing they're all rushing to photograph him through the coach window and suddenly seeing him as objectified by them and finding it repugnant and then questioning all of my past attempts that sort of documenting others that I didn't have a relationship with and I think it was that point at which I kind of had to really stop and think about what I was doing not to say that I was doing anything similar to that you know because the people that I was trying to film I, I was in in a relationship with but to come back to your question about time I think the reason I chose to write the book in the present tense was so that as the reader you're coming along with me as I as I go through all of these changes and as I am naive and as I am you know making mistakes and as I am changing the language that's in my mouth you're coming on the journey with me so hopefully the experience isn't that this is a book about me you know the camera is not looking at me it's like we're all looking through my eyes and through my body and it and therefore it becomes everybody's body and that I hoped would allow for the reader to have as close to my experience as possible of engaging in a different way with the world without actually going there and I think it's a realistic representation also in terms of like acknowledgement of the ancestors and the supernatural legacy of the ancestors that was very much present in my existence to, to have them there and, and as I encounter them for the first time and come up against my preconditioning of like, you know, ghosts can't be real, but I'm looking at one and my husband <laughs> is looking at the same thing. And apparently, according to my father-in-law, this guy is a known ghost who's got a name. So who am I to say that's not real? Thank you so much. I was also thinking about the chapter Raven. So it's not only about seeing ghosts, but also trying to imagine and remember maybe a past that you actually haven't even witnessed or that you weren't even a part of. One bit that stayed among many others was that you're just trying to find your feet in your new home in Iceland and you imagine the previous owner, I think Boga, and you imagine her climbing up the ladder on a rainy day, you say, and how she would have a basket of damp laundry resting on her hip, which is absolutely beautiful. And I think you just answered maybe one of the questions that you ask yourself in the book as well when you say towards the end of the book about relationality and about the old voices that you invoke throughout the book you say a character is a character after all but it has left me wondering as I have to have what story I'm telling whose story I'm telling I mean I think that's the lovely thing about inheriting a house that's sort of as it had been for many years so it, it doesn't actually take much to imagine someone else moving around that house because presumably they move in a similar way to you do. Because, I mean, this the imagining the basket of laundry on her hip, it's because I had gone up into the attic and found 
a washing line with her pegs still on it, even though she hadn't lived in that house for eight years. It had sat empty for eight years, but her pegs were still on the line as if she'd left yesterday. And because it was a steep ladder up to a trapdoor, like that's the only way you can carry a basket of laundry up to the attic. You know, if I was to do it, you have to kind of hold the ladder with one hand and have it. So it's like, yeah, it didn't it didn't take much for me to picture that sort of thing. And the, the pattern on the door handles I knew was sort of from her gestures and movements around the house. It felt that she was very present with me in that house. And 70 years, to have a legacy of 70 years is unusual, I think, in these times, to have someone who's lived in one place for that long. And it's only right then that the house takes her name and will always, I think. So, Sarah, you talked a bit about that sense of vulnerability, almost with going into a place being the outside and going in and all throughout your book there is a sense of being vulnerable even in the subject matter even in the telling of right at the beginning we know that you you've started the book from the end of this cycle of your story as I was reading it and listening to it I was just thinking my gosh what was this like to write it's so personal Mm-hmm. it's so vulnerable then you layer it again when you finish it to go into that community in which you've written about to honor them and almost to get permission to read it to them what was that like for you to go through that whole process and basically lay yourself out I mean I'm guessing from this stage you're almost like family but it's almost sometimes even harder to expose so much to your family than it is to just go, okay, it's out in the open. I don't really know these people who are going to read my book, but you made sure you went to the community in which you wrote about. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about personally what that was like and that decision-making and that drive or that motivator to go through that process? Well, I think it's part of the the sort of relationship of reciprocity that I have now, you know, committed to and, and is the way of being in the world that if a place gives me so much uh, that I end up writing a book, then it's only the right thing to do to go and give the book back to that place first. And so I was very aware that once it was a published book in the UK, you know, there's a degree to which it becomes a product that you're trying to to pedal and I knew that there would be a certain element of like you know publicity circus type vibe about that and I really wanted that very special moment of of taking it it's like if there's a new child in the family you take it to meet the extended family first and then the world and so that was the right order of of things it felt to me but you're right it was an incredibly vulnerable thing to do because I mean Biadni and his extended family it's not that we are particularly close anymore I mean I don't have much to do with his parents at all I have continued a relationship with with him but I didn't know how it would be I mean he'd he'd read the whole thing or he'd had the possibility to read the whole thing from the beginning I'd always send him chapters as I was reading them and I'd also sent chapters to key characters that I felt like I was writing as characters you know to check that I had them right and that the information was right I hadn't read it yet to, for example, the the farmer, Adelstein. But I, yeah, it was very vulnerable, but 
also the only thing to do, I felt. And so whatever happened, I would have to live with it because I, I'd made the choice to write this book. And in the end, what happened was just more than I could ever have dreamed. You know, the, the response I got was phenomenal. And and yet also people were thrilled that I'd come there. Like I remember the first reading I did was on this tiny island that has like population of about 10 people um, in summer months their kin kind of come also. So there was a few more, but we had this first reading of about 15 people and they were so thrilled when I said, I'm not in London, I'm here on this island. But equally, there was this sort of moment of thrill, but then of a, well, and and of course, you know, and of course this is the right thing. And then we just got on with it. And I think they were really moved to have certain people in particular people captured, for example, in their prime who are now, you know, now we're 12 years on, they're maybe quite elderly. So, for example, the guy on that island who used to stand at the ferry whenever it arrived and greet people, he's now too old to do that and his daughter does. And one of his family members was was crying a little to sort of have him so vividly expressed in that way, in that role. And then when it came to being back in the, in the bit where I used to, to live, that was potentially the most vulnerable part but I'd done a few readings by then so I was a bit more used to the act of reading it out I had the confidence of knowing well it it hasn't gone down badly so far so good but now here we are in in the town where it's set and there's my old boss from the flower shop and there's Maya from the bakery and there's Bjarni's sister and and actually Bjarni said he he would have come but he was on holiday but I, I was like I want to invite you but I think it's going to be pretty awkward as well but you know it's up to you and uh but yeah his sister came and she was totally thrilled as well and I think there was a sense that they felt seen and acknowledged and sort of saw themselves through an outsider's eyes and I think one of the things um, somebody mentioned was like you know you're right we do always no matter how busy we are make the time to be available to just talk and chat for as long as it takes but I'd never I'd never thought about that because, you know, when it is your culture, you don't think about those things. So, I, yeah, I think they found it beautiful and interesting and, and helpful sometimes to be able to see to see themselves from the outside. Because there are a lot of different nationalities living there, but it's not often that the experience of a foreigner is expressed in a way that's accessible to people to, to read. So I'm really glad that I did that. And I felt like having done that, whatever else happened it was okay. It's come full circle. And I think with all the work, all the creative work I do, I've done that with a film that I made in Iceland as well. I took it back to the place where the film was actually made and screened it in that place in an off-grid screening that people walk to because the place is such a powerful force. You know, it, it is the context, it is the material. And even if there's no humans in the audience, the place is still listening, I think. Yeah, I think it's a little bit what you just said, that even if there are not people in the audience, that the place is still listening. And mm-hmm. I really like that reciprocity that you express throughout the book when you talk about the about the seasons and you're saying, oh, the children go back to school and then you always incorporate the landscape into whatever you're narrating. You're always mixing human stories with what they have around them when you're talking about Yes, and landscape, and the, and the word landscape, how the landscape is not a big enough term. Um, I really 
enjoy the awareness of that and I guess it is the kind of this space I guess we go back to temporality and the sense of space that you have in certain places that people on different paces do not understand or or that I fail to grasp could you talk a little bit more about that reciprocity with the landscape and the vastness and not having a term that is big enough I think that's just an amazing expression well I think that was an interesting thing that came out of like the problems I encountered as with the filmmaker gaze you know it's like landscape the word landscape is this sort of aesthetic term for something that's framed somehow like we're all looking at each other right now on zoom in landscape but there's so much more to our worlds and to the way we smell and think and feel and the spaces mm. so what's behind and, and beside and inside and above this frame um, because that is what you're relating to you're not relating to the frame I kept coming up against that in the language of filmmaking, you know, the word to capture is also like, what is that about? You're trying to box this thing in that's so much more wild. And I love what you said earlier, Erdem, of gloriously messy. You know, I was trying to mm-hmm. find a way to represent the glorious messiness of, of existence because that's that's what you're having the re- reciprocity with. And the same goes for with these rhythms of time that that are led by the birds. You know, I think that was really striking to me that time was measured in light and darkness and what came with that light and that darkness and what comes with the light is the arrival of just thousands of birds and all of the voices that they bring and so I began you know as you go through these cycles of time you start to learn you know which birds are coming first and then what sounds you're going to start to hear and the world keeps changing incrementally and you could you could almost have your eyes shut and know what month it was by how how it felt on your skin and how it sounded in your ears. And that's something I miss deeply to be that tuned in to where we are. And also it's going awry. The seasons are going awry. So the flowers and the birds also are finding it hard to know where we're at in terms of time. So I think it's an interesting, time is an interesting question. You know, what is time now in our times? And how how do we have cycles? Which cycles are we tapping into now? And I hope again that, the nest structure as a metaphor, I hope that the nest will always be able to accommodate things that are broken, things that are unraveling, things that are linked, things that are not, and just to, to weave them together endlessly in cycles and to be able to just take in whatever comes in and fill a little gap here and create a little space here. So now I understand the summer has been silenced, you say at one point, and I guess it's a lot of the bird voices that have just left the place. So the summer has been silenced as a beautiful place. And also the hush that descends when the snow falls, it has this sort of insulating property. So it changes the way things sound because they're not echoing so much anymore. It definitely, yeah, it definitely changes things. And yeah, I suppose I, I loved using that like languaging these changes so I remember the sort of the summer has been silence it comes at like a full stop at the end of a lyrical sentence and it just feels like the language that I was learning wasn't just Icelandic it was this language of, of reciprocity and of the, the world itself speaking its own language I'm gonna just do a little reading a short reading at the end that probably speaks quite well to what we've just been speaking The first words I learnt were the names of wildflowers and herbs, as Bjartni and I made our first road trip in Mariobjatla, our campervan, 
in June 2009, at a time of year when the flowers sing loudly for two weeks and the leaves are most potent. I painted some on the inside of the van door with their names, Geldinganapur, Kloelfting, Hollert, so they would be the last thing I saw when I fell asleep and the first when I woke up. Gida has always given me Icelandic herb tea at Christmas, a mix of leaves she has picked that sprout from the hillsides in early summer. She has shown me the plants and told me their names. This year, I want to gather my own herbs in my valley and give some back to her. I call Gida. Hi, hi. I'm just wondering if it's still okay to gather herbs for tea. Ah, uh, it's better in early June, before they've begun to flower. The taste is strong in the leaves then, but just try it. You remember what you're picking? I don't think of the plants in English. I got to know them here. What I see in my mind's eye when she asks the question is their shape, their colour, and the sound of their name. Leon's lappi, lion's feet. Rjupnaloif. Ptarmigan leaf, Blodberg, blood of the rock. Only later would these shapes and images become hitched onto alpine lady's mantle, mountain dryas, and wild creeping thyme, when I had read about them in books. That's right. But Sarah, she interrupts, unusually. Yes? What's happened? Do you know you're speaking to me in Icelandic? in full sentences. An invisible moment has arrived in which these words I have been gathering like herbs have infused. There are enough words in me now to improvise a world, to express and to be understood. I have been speaking Icelandic and so has she. Maybe it was being away. It allowed the words to settle. A mutual joy fills the distance down the telephone line and brings us closer. We can communicate. I walk out the door with this newfound freedom and power to gather herbs in my valley. Here, walking among the flowers and the fundamentals, I am allowed and able to have a relationship with this place. Through words, through imagination, through living and tending, I can go back to a beginning. Not the beginning. There is no beginning and there is no end, but a beginning nonetheless. One in which my thoughts are not yet housed. One in which they make a home for themselves and take their cue from the place they're in. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Yeah. Really gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts. A podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.